0: looking at a physical Bible right now, you might notice a note. Uh, Most of the modern translations have some way of noting this, uh, that this passage is not uh, included in some of the earliest manuscripts that we have of the New Testament. By and large, the New Testament is one of the most stable ancient documents that we have. There's only really two parts of the New Testament that have a multiverse passage that is at all in question. Uh, one is at the very end of Mark. We preached through Mark a couple of years ago and talked about that. And then this passage that we're about to read—we've uh, known about this for hundreds and hundreds of years. <laughs> and uh, and the the earliest—it is true that some of the earliest manuscripts we have don't don't have it, and that the. Some of the earliest of the church fathers never comment on it, and yet certainly some of the church fathers do. Not all that much later, and maybe even more significantly, to my mind anyway, we've learned a whole lot about made-up gospels in <laughs> recent uh, decades. And uh, this is nothing like those. It it is set. It, it actually under, knows the geography of. Jerusalem. It deals with Old Testament laws. It uh, it it thematically is very much connected with uh, other parts of John, even including the next passage we'll talk about next week. And so, if I am of the mind that it's appropriate to be here, uh, there are questions that arise from it. Certainly, if we were going to build a whole doctrine out of a passage like this, that might raise some concerns. But I think it belongs here, so I don't want you to be worried about it if, it's, if that's a concern to you if you're reading it. I don't mean to make a big deal out of it, just to note that for any of you who are actually looking at a physical Bible right now. So, with all that said, let's just go ahead and read it, all right? At the end of John 7, they went each to his own home, or into his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down. Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, God's given it so that we would know His love and grace towards us and might in turn respond and love Him. So let's pray that He would speak through His word this morning. Father, we praise you that you are gracious and merciful, and that what we find over and over again in the pages of your word is the grace of your Son, is your fatherly heart towards us, and the power of the Spirit at work. So we pray, even now, that that Spirit would work through your word, and in the name of your Son, amen. We read a passage like this, and I don't know where your mind goes. I imagine that some of us are hearing a passage like this and are kind of horrified at the whole scene. Uh, Maybe maybe it's just that we're picturing the sort of gender politics of the thing. This woman kind of dragged into the middle of all these men and demanded, well demanding a response for what she's done. On the other hand, some of us might be a little scandalized at Jesus' response to this. I mean, I know it's a well-known passage. And if you've grown up in the church, I'm sure you've heard it before. But the fact that Jesus just lets a significant sin just go is a little scandalizing. it kind of this passage really does bring into focus the ways that we respond to sin. And I think that there's at least three ways that we see here that we respond to sin. One is accusation. One is shame. And the other is forgiveness. Accusation, shame, and forgiveness. The accusation part's the most probably obvious. The Pharisees and the scribes. We show up with this woman, with we know very much uh, nothing about her, <laughs> other than one thing that she's done. Right? They drag her in in front of him. Uh, tell tell Jesus that she's been caught. Not just that she has, has committed adultery; she's been caught in the act of the adultery. And they demand that Jesus tell them. So, are we going to do? what the law of Moses says. Now, what they're thinking about is Leviticus 20.10 and Deuteronomy 22.22, which I'm sure that was right there on the top of your head. But uh, but those are the two passages where this is mentioned in the law of Moses. Uh, Except if you did know those laws, one detail might stand out to you where's the man? Where's the guy that she was caught with? Because, both of those, because in both of those places where this is mentioned, it says that both are supposed to be executed. I don't know where he is. Maybe he's in custody somewhere or something. I don't know. But it's pretty obvious that they've taken the person with at least the, the least public standing. Uh, perhaps the, the person they know will be the most ashamed and drag her in before Jesus. And so to, to a reader that's attuned and no doubt to Jesus, and you can tell the narrator is too, right? John, John's telling us they did this to test Jesus. He says that in verse 6. It's pretty obvious that their, their concern actually is not first and foremost with the law. It's about catching Jesus. Now, they don't recognize that until Jesus tells them, well, the first one, or the one who's without sin, should be the first to cast the stone. This is verse, uh, the end of verse 7. Because there's another law that actually tells you how a kind of these capital offenses are supposed to be done. In Deuteronomy 17.7, it's said that when this, when in this kind of situation, the person who's the witness is supposed to cast the first stone. So, by Jesus mentioning the first stone, He's, drawing, he's clearly trying to draw their minds back to the law Himself. And what gets… becomes crystal clear is, first, there's probably no witness there because they won't pick up the stone, which in turn asks, you know, kind of begs the question of everybody there, are we really… are we really interested in God's law? You know, I don't know that Jesus is necessarily saying that hey, look, you have to be perfect in order to follow through on the things that the law requires. But it's, it's obvious that in bringing up the first stone, he is putting his finger on the problem, that they are more interested in trapping him, they are more interested in the appearance of keeping the law than actually keeping the law they are interested in posturing to being law-keeping people than actually being attentive to it. Not, certainly not in any comprehensive way. I don't think it's a mistake <laughs> than that it's the oldest people in the group that walk away first. Uh, because it is true, the older you get, right? The more... <laughs> You can't live with the illusion that you're perfect. Well, see, the problem here is not the law. I mean, we could have a broader conversation about what constitutes capital punishment in the Old Testament and why why that is and all that. But, you know, Jesus is not criticizing the law in any way, shape, or form. The law is good. The law helps us, especially the moral law in particular, helps us to understand the character of God. And the Bible is clear about this all over, right, that the law is a delight because of that. And the, and the more that we grow in, in our faith, the more that we ought to delight in God's law. And, and yet, and yet, there are ways to misuse the law, in reform circles, we talk about, uh, we typically talk about three uses of the law. Historically, the church has talked about that. Some of you are familiar with this. Uh, with the moral law, right, there's a, what's often called the pedagogical use, the use that's supposed to drive us to Jesus, to show ourselves that we're desperately in need of a Savior and supposed to drive us to Him. There's a, a, there is a, a kind of civic use of it in which it can be helpful for restraining. Sin. Interesting, interestingly, John Calvin, when he talks about that, talks about it as a kind of subset of the pedagogical, right? That those whose consciences won't drive them uh, need a little external help. But then there's a third use that, as well, like that, that shows us the shape of what we ought to be growing into as Christians. Those are uses of the law. There's one, use, there's one thing that's not a use of the law. And I want to be careful here because this, is going to, this might sound heretical. <laughs> Judgment is not a use of the law. I mean, God may use it that way, but as far as we were concerned, it's not a use of the law. I mean, moral discernment is obviously involved in using the law in any way, shape, or form. But the conviction of sin, in the midst of it, is for other ends. It's supposed to be not so that we simply condemn someone, but so that we drive them to Christ. Really, in one shape or another, we're driving them to Christ. The, The point is to remind us of of who God really is and what we're supposed to be like. And so needless to say, in churches, you know, got a really mixed history with this, right? I mean, sometimes it seems to be that judgment is the use to which we want to put the law. That we just want to tell people that they're under judgment. The, uh, when I was in campus ministry, you know, from time to time, there would be street preachers that would come through. And, you know, some, some of them, they were, they, were, they were preaching the gospel. And, you know, you might, you might think about whether that was the most effective and useful way to do such a thing. But, you know, they were, they were at least talking about Jesus. And, and then every, sometimes you get some that were really bullish on how everybody was guilty. And what you need to do is repent. And all of that I suppose is true enough as far as it goes, and yet it's a misuse of the law. If in fact what we're not doing is showing people the graciousness of Jesus, even this week I ran across uh, an, an article someone had written on this passage and. Uh, and they were talking about how Jesus is not making light of the law, but actually is taking the law more seriously than everybody else there. And that's true as far as it goes. And yet I got to the end of that, that article and I thought, hmm, it sounds like the woman got off on a technicality. And that was about it. <laughs> But in fact, accusation is our is one of our defaults, isn't it? Especially when it comes to other people's sin, it's what we want to do. And even even when you know, even in, you know, institutions where discernment is really supposed to happen—whether that's you know civil government, whether that's church government, whether that's uh, even as parents—we're constantly warned against being overly harsh. We're constantly warned that, uh, that there's a great uh, responsibility that comes with that and not to abuse it. Over and over again, we're warned against that. And yeah, th- but that is what we love to do. And of course, this is to say nothing of just individually, we love to do that, to accuse others. I mean... Every time a big public event happens that has any sort of debatable sides to it, right? This is exactly what happens on social media. People accuse others of being this or that. This is what we do when we talk about people that we know, So we accuse them. But that's not the way of Jesus, is it? So we have accus- accusation as one response and then shame as another. This also probably is really obvious. Uh, but this woman is dragged, as we've already noted, into the middle of all these men. Her sin on full display in front of them. And, uh, you know, she doesn't say anything. And you know, I, I, That could just be that there's nothing recorded. Though I imagine she probably doesn't say anything. What is there left to say? There's a line in a, uh, a poem by Dana Joya uh, where he says, talking about somebody, he says, the scent of your shame is a heavy cologne. Right? And you can... It's like you can kind of just, it's just sort of wafting off of that person. Yeah, that's, that's the kind of image I get here. And the reality is that, of course, all of us struggle with shame when it comes to our issues. Kurt Thompson in his book, The Soul of Shame, says this, when we experience shame, we tend to run away from others because the prospect of being seen or known by another carries the anticipation of shame being intensified or reactivated. However, the very act of turning away while temporarily protecting and relieving us ironically simultaneously reinforces the very shame we're attempting to avoid. We hide when we're ashamed. Um... I mean, maybe, you know, I've known some folks that that kind of, the scent of shame just kind of wafts off of them. And maybe in particular when they're in, when certain topics come up or when they're in certain situations and they can't hide it. And then I know a lot of other people who just kind of try to hide in plain sight and try to convince themselves, put on a good face but essentially live in denial right that they're ashamed of something about their lives they look for justifications perhaps to convince themselves that it's not a big problem it's funny i i think when <laughs> i think when i started in ministry i thought i had to convince people that they're sinners And it may be true that I have to convince them about a particular sin. It may be true that we have ways of self-justifying. It may be true that there are, you know, certain sins that our culture tells us, you know, lies about that justify them. All those things can be true. But the longer I've been in ministry, the longer I've thought, well… It's just a matter, really, of whether we're willing to be honest about what we're ashamed of. Because we're all ashamed of something. We might put on a good face, we might try to avoid a particular topic. I try to avoid certain situations so we don't have to deal with it or don't have to feel it. But we are ashamed. And the irony, and this was what Kurt Thompson was putting his finger on, was that the more that we hide, the more it ends up reinforcing that. And the only way to really deal with shame is to actually be vulnerable with somebody and talk about it. I mean, that's, that's what we are actually doing when we confess our sins. I know it can feel rote because it's every Sunday we, <laughs> we do it. That's supposed to be the point, right? Is to be vulnerable with God and to own what it is that we've done. Now, I'm not saying you should be vulnerable with everybody, that that won't do. <laughs> There's some people you probably, definitely shouldn't be vulnerable with. Um, but the one person, one person you can be vulnerable with, happens to be the person in this passage. Uh, Saint Augustine commenting on this passage says this, and there were two left alone, the pitiful and pity itself. See, the other way to respond to sin is forgiveness, and that is what Jesus offers to this woman, is forgiveness. I think the, the, the just even the description of Jesus' posture in this passage is, is interesting, is instructive, that there is a, a crowd sort of circled around. And this woman, of course, is at the center of it. And Jesus, as if to sort of pull the attention to himself, stoops down to the ground and starts writing. And we don't know what he wrote. There's been a lot of conjecture about that, as you can probably imagine. We don't know what he wrote. <laughs> But, he's, but he's, he is drawing the attention to himself and off of her. And when he stands up and he asks her, has no one condemned you? What is his response? Is his response, you know, it's obviously not, oh, look, well, I guess nothing was wrong. No. No neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Go and sin no more. You know, I mentioned there was an article that uh, I had read that was reflecting on Jesus taking the law more seriously. And actually, I think the problem with that article was that it forgot to stop and think about just how serious Jesus thought the problem of sin was. You know, at the beginning of the Gospel of John, we're told the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Not that Jesus discounts the law, not that Jesus disrespects the law in any way, shape, or form, but that Jesus actually understands that the law, because it is so good, is a fundamental problem for us. And the problem our sin is so bone-deep Is so deep down into our hearts that nothing is going to change us if we are supposed to generate it ourselves. That the deepest problem this woman has isn't actually her adultery, the deepest problem that you and I have isn't actually this one particular sin in our lives. The deepest problem we have is that we are incapable of following the law of God on our own. And so Jesus came, not merely to get this woman off the hook on a technicality, not merely to tell her to be better, but to give his life for her. I mean, when Jesus offers forgiveness to her, as he does to other people throughout the Gospels, Jesus is paying, well, Jesus is offering in advance what he will pay for in his own body, what Jesus will pay for by being put to shame himself. And you might think I'm overstating that. But you forget what the cross was like. You forget that He was beaten along the way, made to carry the instrument of His own torture, and was stripped and hung up on display. And when we talk about Jesus bearing our shame, we're not talking about something abstract that he does. When we talk about him forgiving us, we're not talking about something abstract. We're talking about the thing that he bore in himself, body and soul on the cross. Now, what Jesus offered was not merely a forgiveness because, well, anybody could, this could happen to anybody. He offered forgiveness because he was going to pay the debt that she deserved. He was going to die in her place. Jesus offers forgiveness not simply because it would be nice if people forgave a little more. Jesus forgave her because, in fact, she deserved death and he would take it for her. And the same is true for you, it is what our sins deserve. Our sins, if we were left to ourselves, they are shameful. But that is the point. We are not left to ourselves. That what Jesus has done is lowered himself. One of the old Puritans, a guy named Richard Sibbs, says this, the lower Christ comes down to us, the higher let us lift him up in our hearts. The lower he comes down, the higher let us lift him up in our hearts. And we are so afraid that it's disrespectful to talk about how low Jesus came for us. And the more that we hold that at arm's length, the more we will lack in a deep appreciation of his grace for us. Jesus came all the way down. Jesus bore all of our shame. Jesus endured everything that we deserved for our salvation. That was his goal from the beginning. That is his goal even now. It was his ongoing goal for this woman and it is his ongoing goal for you. So don't be ashamed of the one who wasn't ashamed of you. Instead, the lower Christ comes down to us the higher, let us lift him up in our hearts. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are not left to our own devices. We praise you that when we were lost in sin, Jesus took on flesh to become like us, to bear in his body and in his soul all that we deserved. Lord, we thank you that he did all of this, not merely, not merely of his own accord, but because you as the loving father sent him. And that what he has done is now powerful because the spirit is at work. And that spirit reminds us and works into us powerfully everything that Jesus has accomplished. So as we turn to this meal, Lord, would you remind us of how low your son went for us? And will we hold him up even higher, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.